Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. We took some time off the air these past few weeks as our team was in transition, and now we're glad to be back with you. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations will cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. With me today are my colleagues, Travis Wusso and Stephen Harris. Hey, Jeff. Good to be here, as always. And joining the roundtable as our featured guest is Brent Leatherwood. Brent, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be with you, brothers, especially in this exciting stretch run to the midterm elections. <laughs> That's right. The topic of today's roundtable will be the 2018 midterms. But before we jump into that, we want to get the chance for you, Brent, since you're uh, not here in the D.C. office and always on this podcast, like uh, my colleagues Travis and Stephen, wanted to give our listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit better. So let's start with the basics. Where are you from? I'm originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Spent uh, probably half of my childhood in Tennessee and, and Florida, just because uh, parents got a divorce. And so Florida is actually where uh, I cut my teeth in politics. Okay. Uh, that's where I got my first job. What drew you to engaging in politics to cut your teeth, as you said? Man, I got to tell you, it probably started in high school. I got voted most likely to succeed. Wow, that was the beginning of it. Yeah, it really was. No, it just... Yeah, that, that was how you, you got addicted to elections. Yeah, well, I mean, I got elected. So you that, campaigned you know, to be the one well, most likely to succeed? And here's the reality. I also won homecoming king. You oh, know, wow. Oh, wow. got the most votes. I didn't know it was going to take this uh, turn. On our homecoming yeah, court. And so just that appetite uh, was created <laughs> to chase down votes from my, my fellow citizens. If this were a video podcast, you could you could see what a perfect knot Brent has tied in his tie. It's no wonder he was elected homecoming That's true. king and, and, and a, most and a likely sporting to jacket, succeed. I have to say. It's a pretty yeah. nice knot. Uh, it's a full Windsor. Yeah, uh, I, I know and, the name and of it. So we need to. Okay, okay, getting back to the topic <laughs> at hand, because there are no midterms for uh, the homecoming ballot. That's right. No. Uh, what drew you to politics? What, what was, what was well, your. So it was kind of cultivated early. My mom ran for office uh, when I was in high school for a local city council. Uh, just seeing her do that, it just, I thought it was uh, just a great experience to go out and actually ask people for their vote. And so to this day, I, I hold up. Our, our vote as citizens as a very special privilege uh, that we have as Americans. And, you know, few countries uh, throughout the history of man uh, have been able to directly cast a ballot on the folks who are leading them. And I just think that's, that's such a special time. I, I love campaign season. I, I loved in that season of my life uh, going out with my mom and my stepdad to campaign for her. And so for whatever reason, that actually led into a career. I, I, I don't know that it was purposeful, but it certainly was cultivated at a, at a very young age. And so uh, when I went into college, went to uh, my political science degree, not again to necessarily think it was a career, but just because that's what interested me. The study of how people uh, work together and engage in the, in the public square uh, in a society. And um, to this day, still find it very fascinating. 
And where'd you do undergrad? Uh, the University of Central Florida. In oh, Orlando. national champions. That's right. The national champions. <laughs> That's we good, want Alabama. Yeah. yeah. Just put that on the record. Uh, Brent, what brought you to the URLC? Uh, what brought me to the URLC? So in 2015, when Dr. Moore was, uh, he was out there talking about his book, Onward, and he used a quote uh, to talk about it, which said, politics flows downstream from culture. And that really resonated me uh, as someone who is engaged in politics on a daily basis. And I understood immediately what he meant because all of the candidates uh, that I was dealing with, they were reflections of the communities uh, that they came from and that they were seeking to serve. And frankly, there are some really good ones, but there are also some folks there that were just like, man, I'm just not sure that you should be in public leadership. Uh, we can do better. And um, I thought, man, if, if, if an opportunity ever presented itself where I could work further upstream into a culture-shaping organization like the RLC, I would jump at that opportunity. And as it happens, after the 2016 election, that opportunity presented itself. And here I am with you brothers. Working upstream. That's right. Exactly. Let's jump into the, to the issue at hand. Yeah. So I, I know we are working upstream from culture and... For our team in the D.C. office, we focus on what happens after the election. We focus on the policy side, not the necessarily political and election side of, of what happens with our nation's elected officials. But we have an election coming up. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we're, you know, at the time of recording this and publication will be somewhere around 20 days out from the November 2018 midterm election. Right now, and uh, for the whole 115th Congress, we've we've had an all-Republican-controlled federal government. Republicans lead the House of Representatives. They lead the Senate. We have a Republican president in the White House. So, Brent, my, my first question to you is, will the midterms change that? It's very likely. How so? Well, so uh, traditionally, uh, a president's first midterms, there's just always significant headwinds. As a matter of fact, the last time uh, that a president actually gained seats uh, in his first midterm in Congress was the 2002 midterm. And honestly, the, the major reason for that was because President Bush uh, was able to utilize the reservoir of support uh, that he had uh, post 9-11 uh, and was able to effectively use that in those midterms. And so Republicans actually gained seats. But traditionally, that is, that is not what happens. Yeah. Uh, Americans elect the president of a particular party, and then the first midterm that they have to provide a check on that president, they, they tend to go with members of the other party. And uh, we are certainly seeing those headwinds here. Typically, a president's fave, unfave ratings uh, are a leading indicator. So whether he is above water in his favorability ratings or whether he is, is underwater, President Trump is at a historic level in terms of being unfavorable for the vast majority of uh, our citizens. However, there's been a new variable that's kind of been injected into the equation, and that's these last three weeks that we saw uh, prior to now Justice Kavanaugh uh, getting confirmed. So here's the deal. For when we're talking, we are 25 days out uh, in this new era that we're in that may as well be six months. Uh, <laughs> there yeah, there sure. are a number of uh, potential uh, items that may occur to change the news cycle and eventually change how people end up voting. But right now, all indicators are that at least uh, the U.S. House of Representatives uh, will flip. 
So I want to ask this question to all of us here. What resources uh, do each of you and whoever wants to jump in can jump in? What resources have you found helpful leading up to an election night? Uh, I can jump in. Um, I try to find organizations on the right and the left uh, that talk about this. So if I'm looking on the right, Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Polls has a, a composite of polls that they've managed for the last several years. And if I'm looking for one on the left, it's 538.com, Nate Silver's um, organization. And both have a model that, you know, like as Brent was talking about, this this sort of idea that in general, uh, the party the party flips during a midterm, you know, you could sort of think of that as, a, as like a macro factor. And then you have the micro factor, which is what is the poll doing in, a, in any particular uh, district or any particular state. And so both Real Clear Polls and Nate Silver's 538 are going to are going to weight those in different ways in terms of the macro and, and the poll factors. But those are two. I also have a Twitter list of, of several pollsters that I dip into from time to time, take a look at. It's not it's not public, but that's but that, that's that's like another that's a, you know, Twitter is a pretty good source of information for this kind of stuff these days. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely would echo uh, what Travis just said. Twitter, if it's used responsibly, <laughs> uh, can be very helpful. Yeah, and, like a campfire is nice, but when it becomes a dumpster fire, it's it's not nice. Time right. to step away. Yeah. So if you are using Twitter uh, to merely confirm your own biases mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to politics, it's probably not a helpful way uh, of utilizing it. But if you can create these Twitter lists, uh, especially, uh, as Travis just mentioned, and follow folks from different uh, vantage points, reporters on different beats within the kind of political beat, that can be a really helpful tool. Yeah, um, I agree with what's been said. I've, I think 538 is an outlet that I go back to often. But for me, I'm, as one who's less interested in kind of the polling and percentages, I, I, I'm fascinated to know what makes a good poll. Maybe we'll get to that. But I'm more so interested in people giving analysis kind of at the ideological level of politics in terms of just where the parties are trying to align themselves in the current moment. And so that's important for the midterm elections, but just where the future of the parties are going. It helps me, at least, in terms of one who works at the D.C. office at the ERLC, um, just get a sense of where kind of the cultural conversations probably is. I, I can imagine people sitting at home, they might have Twitter lists, they might not, they might read 538, they might not, but they're thinking at kind of the broader 30,000-foot level of where were we culturally, how does my theology fit into that, what seems to be the nature and tone and tenor of the, the platforms as we move forward, and, and I think they'll be looking for that stuff here for midterm elections. So I'll throw out a, a couple other uh, places. The uh, Charlie Cook's Political Report, is I think a great resource. It's kind of the gold standard. Yeah, right? I, it's just and it's it's pretty much straight down the middle. A well, new what, one. What's his background? Uh, Charlie Cook. Yeah. He's uh, I think he used to be a political reporter. Now he's a political analyst. Okay. Uh, and he just looks at all the hot races cool. around the country and pretty much tells you these are toss ups, these are leans, these are likelies. Cool. Um, it's it's just a go to resource uh, for everybody that I know, even from my time up in Washington. Um, back in you know 2004 through 2008. Another one, this is actually new for this cycle, but uh, Harry Enten, who used to be uh, with 538, he is now signed up with CNN and he has uh, a new site called The Forecast. And he is a polling whiz kid. It's unbelievable. Yeah, he, he just dives into polling. So he, he's an incredible resource. I, I'm looking forward to what he does with this The Forecast. Um, but like for right now, for example, I, I just looked it up. 
Uh, he is forecasting Democrats to win 229 seats okay. uh, in the House, which would be a majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one, the, the go-to resource for political reporters is the almanac of American politics. They crack that thing open and you can get very detailed data on each and every congressional seat, state. Uh, it's a pretty phenomenal resource uh, that you can get at your local bookstore. Well, there you go. So, Brent, I mentioned this in the answer that I gave to the previous question, which is the issue of polls. Um, And I probably, in full disclosure, probably approached this from a more cynical place Mm -hmm. because of this question is about representations in polls and to be polled and to be asked requires a kind of certain maybe status and just a lot of things go into the nature of polling. And so as we approach these midterm elections, you're going to hear a lot more about polls and polling and people are going to be trying to track as best they can with numbers. How would you define a reliable poll? And then I guess conversely, what are some of the red flags that you look for when you're analyzing the legitimacy of a poll? Yeah. Yeah. So those are great questions. Uh, I would say this. By and large, polling has actually been accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, If there's a general category where polling is, is difficult, it is when there are special elections. Mm-hmm. But when you are talking about an election every two years, the congressional midterms, the general election and presidential cycles, generally the polling is pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so I will say that. But uh, if you are given a poll, uh, the first kind of three things you need to ascertain about that poll as to whether it's legitimate or not is, is who did the poll, uh, the type of history that organization has with polling, um, and is there is there a kind of a good confidence in terms of the transparency of the poll? So, <clears throat> what, do, what do you mean by that? Uh, a lot of pollsters, like I would say, right now, a really good standard uh, poll that is issued is the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. Okay, it's two leading news outlets. They always have a leading Republican pollster and a leading Democratic pollster uh, to kind of use that survey and put it out there, uh, to build it and put it out there, I should say. It's typically very reliable. But just like we've seen with fake news outlets, yeah, there are a number of outlets out there, organizations that are conducting illegitimate polls. And they're, I mean, we're talking everything from little, you know, Twitter surveys uh, to other kind of digital platforms. So you do have to have a pretty healthy level of discernment to mm-hmm. tell the difference. Probably some places I can tell you right now uh, to don't put a lot of weight in some of these polls are any polls that come from campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> well, why would that be the case? Yeah. And there are a number of polls out there that are, are, are really, they're push polls. And when we say push, so there, there's, this happens in our office quite a bit when some of us get polling. We, we kind of uh, lose what we're being asked. But... Push polls are designed to push you, as the person who answers the phone or uh, answers the survey online, to get you to a certain predetermined conclusion. So that they're pushing you in a particular direction. That is different than when campaigns are actually surveying to message test. Mm-hmm. And some of those messages may be negative. Too often people think that is a push poll. No, it's not. That They're just trying to see if it works to change your vote because if they, if they see a discernible level of data then they will use it in their campaign. Uh, so that's not a push poll. A push poll is trying to get you to a place that you wouldn't naturally go. Uh, it's also helpful to remember, polls are snapshots in time. They, they are not always like predictive. They're, they're telling you where this particular uh, you know, 
subset of voters are at this particular moment. The other thing to look at is registered versus likely. So we're in a window now where people are pretty engaged for the election. And so most polls coming out now Mm -hmm. should be testing likely voters. If they are still doing registered voters, that's probably not a very reliable poll. You want people who are saying, I am going to go vote and here's who I'm voting for and here's why. That's probably going to be a pretty good poll. And then to some of the stuff you were talking about, Stephen, and polling has changed pretty dramatically over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's impossible to not get a good poll. Mm-hmm. A solid poll will have a very healthy 25% or so of likely voters who answer their cell phones. Mm-hmm. It will still account for uh, voters who tend to be older demographically uh, with landlines. And it will also mix in uh, survey results from a digital uh, survey, so someone that's done online. You have a poll that hits all those kind of different areas, you're getting a pretty good poll right there. So Travis, what are some, let, let's talk about some key races now. Let's let's drill in from the from the big overview election to, to some of the particular uh, members who are up for re-election or, or maybe even states or regions. What are some key Senate races uh, that you have your eye on? Hmm. I'd say big picture, we're, we're going into an election cycle where the map is more favorable to Republicans than it is to Democrats. What in that the means, Senate. In the Senate, where that, when what that means is only a third of the Senate is up for re-election every two-year cycle. There are more Democrats up than there are Republicans, and the Democrats who are up are in, uh, to use the, the Cook uh, political reports parlance, are in you know, either lean uh, states or toss-ups. So, you know, there's eight Democrats who are, you know, who are considered to be vulnerable. That's uh, Minnesota, New Jersey, um, West Virginia, Florida, Indiana, Missouri, Montana, uh, and North Dakota. On the other side, the uh, Arizona Senate race is is an open seat. That's a that's a toss-up. Nevada. Uh, Just for clarity, in Arizona, that's for outgoing Senator Jeff Flake. Right. Um, Heller is Republican of Nevada is, um, he's got a tough race. The Tennessee Senate seat is open. Um, outgoing Senator Bob Corker is retiring. So that seat is now open. That's a tight race. And I mean, I, you know, Texas is, is considered a toss up by Cook. I, I think that's probably pretty generous. I think Cruz will be able to hold on to the seat. So, I mean, the, you know, the, that's some of the races to watch. I mean, I think, you know, just specifically, you know, Florida will be will definitely be an interesting race to watch. Uh, North Dakota with Heidi Heitkamp will be uh, an interesting race to watch. And if you look at most of the forecasts at the time that we're, we're recording this, and, it, and as the caveat that Brett, uh, Brent mentioned earlier, you know, we're... Uh, you know, approximately six thousand news cycles between now and uh, now and uh, and the actual election, and any truly anything could happen. But you know, I think it is likely that the Republicans will hold on to the Senate and probably expand their lead by one or two. You know, one or two, and you could see some of these. You know, some of these seats flip. So you know, Republicans. You know, snag a you know, formerly Democratic seat, and you know, and then vice versa. But I think you know, one one point on that you know, just about the Senate generally is, you know, when when you're in a situation right now where you have 51-49, what that means is if you're on a vote that requires 51 votes, every single senator has maximum leverage because every single yeah. senator can sink the vote yeah. and so uh, or sink the bill or sink the measure or whatever. And so, you know, even if we get into a scenario where it's 52, that changes the political, it changes the, the policy dynamics within within the Senate pretty dramatically, you know, so 
you know, but it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. A couple of thoughts on those races like that, that Nevada one. Uh, I think is really interesting. So, and can you give us the names of the Republican and the Democrat? Yeah, so it's Congressman Jackie Jackie Rosen versus the current incumbent Senator uh, Dean Heller. So, Senator Heller, he is the only Republican senator that's up for re-election this cycle in a state that Hillary won in 2016. So he is already fighting an uphill battle, and and I've seen this quote come back uh, that he made in 2016. He said that. He was 100% against Clinton and 99% against Trump. Uh, and so <laughs> he is he is on an island in so many ways. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just it's just fascinating uh, some of the dynamics there. Uh, I think another one to really one that I'm going to be really paying attention to is Florida. Okay. Uh, Governor give Rick, us the names there. Yeah. Governor Rick Scott versus the incumbent Senator Bill Nelson, the Democrat. Uh, I think the latest polls had Scott. The average was he was up plus two. A lot of Republicans, uh, as a matter of fact, the first campaign that I was on in 2004, have sought to defeat Bill Nelson. Uh, it is tough beating an astronaut in Florida. Uh, <laughs> but what, what's interesting about that is uh, the kind of hurricane politics. Right. Uh, so you had a devastating hurricane go through the panhandle yeah, in Florida. And there is typically a, a, a lot, you can either have a hurricane bounce or a hurricane drop, depending on how you handle that situation. And so uh, Governor Scott is, he's in the middle of all that right now. And, and how he performs is, is probably going to be the last impression uh, he leaves with voters before they, they cast their ballot. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and that's not to say he hasn't performed admirably in the past. Don't hear me say that. It's just, yeah. this is the latest test and it's fresh on voters' minds. Brent, let me ask you this. With Florida, it's one, one of the places I've been watching closely. Mm-hmm. How do you think the governor's race there is affecting the Senate race? Because you have a very kind of tight, in the national kind of news with the governor race, with DeSantis and Gillum. Mm-hmm. Um, is that having any effect on how people are? Or do you think it has an effect on how people look Voters at- seem to actually kind of be decoupling Governors' races from okay. the U.S. Senate races. Uh, I think part of that is is maybe what we've seen with with Kavanaugh. Yep, it's kind of manifesting itself in in Tennessee a little bit, where the gubernatorial candidate Bill Lee from mm-hmm. the Republican side mm-hmm. has raced out based on polling to a twelve to fifteen point lead, but on the Senate uh, race, Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn right, right. has only recently put a little bit of daylight be- between her and, and former Governor Phil Bredesen. Mm-hmm. And so I think voters are just, they're, they're saying, these are two distinct races. They're both important. I'm going to give each of them uh, the kind of focus they need, my attention, uh, to make a decision. So uh, it's really interesting. Gillum, I think one of the things that he's touted coming out of the primary in Florida was that uh, he had reutilized the text message uh, service to get out votes in Florida. Mm-hmm. And that kind of flew under the radar for a lot of the political reporters that were watching that race. And uh, he's planning to try and utilize that again and, and turn out his base in Florida. So that's a kind of under the radar yeah. thing huh. that he's touting as a capability that they have that yeah. uh, his opponent, Ron DeSantis, does not. So what about the House? And Breno, as a former uh, staffer on the House and have campaigned for some congressional races uh, for representatives, what are some of the key house races you're watching? I mean, there yeah. there are a lot, and yeah. anything could happen. It's obviously, like you said, leaning like it's probably going to be a Democrat win, but right. what are some of the key races if you could drill down? For the sake of time, <laughs> uh, I actually just limit it to five. There okay. are a lot of races uh, to be watching. So to kind of set the field, Democrats need 24 seats to capture the majority. 
there are 37 House members on the Republican side who are retiring. That's an incredible number. Um, right, so that's 37 what, seats formerly held by Republicans that bingo. are now, there's no incumbency advantage. It's right. just an open seat. And, bingo. And put that in context, if you could, historically, has that happened recently? Uh, it has happened, but not at that. I mean, that is a historically Yeah, that's a lot. Number. This is not um, normal. A lot of times in midterms, folks do retire just because of those headwinds when they're in the majority party. But this is a, this is a larger amount than we saw in uh, 2010 with Democrats okay. uh, and in previous first midterms. So it, it is a historically high number. Based on Cook Political Report, again, that we're giving them a lot of free advertising, but uh, just based on their measurements, 16 uh, seats are very likely to flip from R to D. So Democrats don't have that much further to go to get a majority. Um, so the races that I'm watching, the probably top five I'm watching are the uh, Florida 26th. That is where Congressman Carlos Curbelo, um, Carlos is a very strong incumbent. He has a lot of very strong local ties. So he's the type of person that even though he's in a pretty 50-50 district, should be able to withstand that based on those local ties. If, if he cannot, that probably is a good indicator. It's, it's going to be a good night for the Democrats. Uh, the Virginia 7th, uh, where Congressman Dave Brad is, a uh, seat just outside of Richmond. Uh, strong, traditionally Republican race, but um, it is a close race. And if he were to go down, I mean, that would be a, a coup for Democrats. Uh, Virginia 10th, uh, right by y'all in Northern Virginia. That's where Congressman Barbara Comstock is. Um, certainly one to watch early in the night. And then for uh, listeners who may be out West, uh, I'm watching the Colorado 6th, where Mike Kaufman is. He is much like Curbelo, somebody with very strong local roots. Uh, he's done a lot of advertising in Spanish. He's done a lot of things that he needs to do to protect himself. He's taken that race very seriously, but it's, it's very possible he goes down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then probably the big one I'm watching for late at night is uh, the House Republican Conference Chair, uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers. Yeah. Uh, her district is just outside of Seattle. If the Democrats win that race, uh, it will cap off what is a big night for them if they take down uh, Congresswoman McMorris Rogers. Yeah, and I, th- I think one of the one of the interesting things to watch about these races is, these, is the extent to which they become nationalized. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, we I, I watch a lot of streaming TV in my house, and so that means that we get political ads from all over the country. You know, I, I don't. I don't know mm-hmm. why these uh, folks are wasting their, you know, their money on me, but I've seen ads from all, literally all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, what, what's interesting is to see, you know, Hillary Clinton uh, feature in House uh, races, to see Nancy Pelosi feature in Senate races. But, you know, I think one of the, one of the interesting questions will be whether Kavanaugh becomes such a galvanizing moment that the local factors that you were mentioning about, you know, ties to the, you know, ties to the local district, those advantages begin to get erased because people aren't concerned about those things, but rather about what's, what's, what's going on That's right. nationally. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I, I heard, I, I don't remember which, uh, which news outlet it was, but it was, it was political journalists basically saying this election seems to be a contrast to the, to the old sort of principle of politics that all politics was local, that it seems like now all politics is national. Right. And it's been trending in that way. But this this particular campaign season, right? Well, and it's, and it's a real shame because, you know, we we have all 
in some ways fallen for you know fallen for the trap that has been set for us by the media because obviously they have a pecuniary interest in our eyeballs watching uh, watching this but you know fall for the lie basically that the most important thing happening anywhere in the world yeah. is what's happening at one address in Washington D.C. Yeah, and um, you know and so I think you know we you know we we were just at our national conference and you know talking to people who are state leaders you know who are really concerned about what's you know what's going on in DC when in reality most of the things that impact your day-to-day life as a as an individual citizen are the things that happen at your local school board your local yeah. where Brent's uh, moms that's exactly right and you know and race. and within your local legislature i mean your your legis- your state legislature has much more power yeah. to impact your life than the federal government does so Stephen, i want to come to you and what how should christians think about engaging in the midterm elections yeah, so going off of what Travis just said, so I want to uh, kind of critique and affirm something at the same time. So we're talking about the way in which these politics have become kind of nationalized and, and kind of tied to that in a moment where people are viewing uh, their engagement in political discourse and political parties as a reflection of their core identity, right? Um, that these these kinds of conversations are are, are tending to mean much in the way of how people view themselves, their values, who they are as, as people, as citizens. And you, you get the sense of, of weight that people are adding to our current sociopolitical moment. I think Christians have to, have to guard against that while, while recognizing the importance of what this arena represents, right? As citizens and, and, and thinking on the responsibility that that God has called us to in terms of, you know, rendering the Caesar the things that are his, right? And what does that mean for a democratic republic and my participation in that as a witness bearer of the gospel, wanting to see righteousness affirmed, evil punished, all these things that will go into the category of government ordained by God. We want to make sure that we think about all those things, but Christians in particular need to try to evidence what it means to not place, as Travis said, all of kind of our ultimate um, hopes in an address uh, in D.C. or in politics. Mm. So how can I engage in a way that I'm being obedient to God, I'm actually uh, on my best day trying to have my theological convictions drive how I engage in politics, but also recognizing that this doesn't have the definitional weight and capacity that 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 the culture is is, is, is importing into it. And as a matter of fact, it's incapable of holding that weight. Right. Uh, that mm-hmm. this is this is going to always let you down yes. in that kind of ultimate sense, right? And so I'm, I'm going to want to encourage Christians to be the example of what it looks like to to be interested and disinterested at the same time, right? To be concerned and and unfazed, right? To be apathetic but also hopeful, but hopeful in the right place as I engage in, in a kind of immediate or intermediary, rather, arena that God has ordained for his purposes in time and space. And so I'm going to want to see that balance. In many ways, you can kind of reduce it down to an already not yet theological paradigm, right? right. The politics is one facet of an arena that needs to be held in its proper place. So, so yeah, I, w- I would encourage Christians to get informed, certainly vote, uh, certainly be driven by uh, uh, their consciences. Uh, and I'm going to want to, and I want to say this too, this is a, this is a current discourse within evangelicalism. I'm going to want to allow space for the freedom of Christian consciences to be pressed upon, impressed, burdened in different ways. You know, that's that's a current conversation that we're having that is is an ongoing one. Um, but I, I'm I'm going to want to um, affirm a Christian's conscience to be weighed, perhaps in ways that are different than my own. 
right? I want to encourage that, right? Um, yeah, that's and, good, and um, and 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 encourage them to to do do as their consciences will lead them to do. So we work in this space, and we talk about this at the office, and we talk about this various mass texts, but we also go home. And to family members, to neighbors, uh, we have other friends, uh, fellow church members who don't, they, they're not as interested in this, or maybe not interested at all. When conversations about the election come up, how should we have those conversations, whether they agree or disagree with the particular view in which you have? Um, how are you engaging in these conversations with people in, in your life outside of ERLC? Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, Stephen had a number of great points there. And I mean, it, it just, it boils down to be, be thoughtful, be respectful, actually listen, uh, maybe more than even uh, talk. Uh, we just don't listen enough in our society in general anymore. Uh, and then when we do talk, we're often just spouting out talking points that we are given from our favorite outlets or favorite uh, folks that we follow. And, right. and Whether so, we know we were given them or not. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, and so... Uh, there's just not, there's no discernment in that. Instead, we just become messengers for the partisan outlets that uh, that we get those things from. So we need to be engaged and we need to be informed. Don't don't be discipled by those favorite media outlets. Uh, get information from multiple sources and really research candidates and the issues that are on the ballot. I don't know how many times when working at polls, somebody would walk up and they have Literally no idea who to vote for, what ballot initiatives are actually on their ballot. Uh, I mean, I'm thankful that they are showing up to do their civic duty. Right. But it's like, man, this is an awesome responsibility. Put a little bit of effort into it to be informed. Yeah. You know, and then lastly, I would say, if you're going to engage on this with family and friends, coworkers, et cetera, seek to do so in a loving way. Seek to... If you if you choose to advocate, seek to persuade, not to pulverize somebody. <laughs> I am I am. But so, it's so fun to pulverize. <laughs> yeah, but it's just not helpful, nor is it Christian. <laughs> but we live in a culture that wants to own a yeah. conversation, yeah. wants well, to own a person. And as Christians, right. we should be against any form of human bondage. Yes, certainly. Uh, and, and so, uh, and certainly in our political discourse, uh, the American experiment only works if we have a healthy public square where people can feel free to contribute their opinions from wherever they are in the yeah. political expe- spectrum without just getting completely driven out of the public square. Right, and that starts neighborhood by neighborhood. Yes. Yeah, right. Coffee shop by coffee shop. That's good. Yeah, yeah. just to add on to that, I mean, I think the Jonathan Haidt, who wrote a book called The Righteous Mind a couple of years ago, um, had a tweet that went viral not too, you know, just a couple of weeks ago that talked about partisan hatred. So not yeah. just partisan affiliation, but, but you know, so wh- which set of ideas or which team do you like, but, but rather which do you, you know, the extent to which you hate the other party. Right. And partisan hatred is above 50% for both parties. So if you identify as a Republican, more than half of you uh, hate Democrats and more than half of uh, Democrats hate Republicans. And, you know, I think, as you pointed out, Jeff, I mean, I think that that is a trend that that only reverses, you know, individual by individual. Obviously, you know, as Brent mentioned at the top of, of our show, you know, there are things that we're trying to do as an organization to change the tide on some of that stuff. But our strategy depends not on our ability to to sort of saturate a media market, but rather our ability to convince everyday Christians that we we have to we have to be 
uh, messengers with a better message. And I think, you know, for us to try to approach every conversation we have about politics, to try to turn down, turn down the volume at a minimum, but, but turn down the hatred to the other side and help, you know, help remind people of any political persuasion that the other side doesn't hate America. They're not trying to destroy America. They just have a different vision of the good life. Yeah. And, um, and, and what's good for the country. Mm-hmm. Lehman's, Jonathan Lehman's book, uh, How the Nations Rage is a really good resource for thoughtful Christians out there that are looking for a way to uh, engage in the public square, but not to do so in a you know a hurtful, uh, you know unhelpful manner. Like people who actually want to build up uh, our public square. I, I, I would commend that resource to all of our listeners. Yeah, it's good. So Brent, where are you going to be on election night? Yeah, so on election night, I, I probably actually will be at the RLC headquarters uh, in Nashville. Okay. Uh, hopefully, we'll have some folks from our staff join us, but take advantage of the fact we have all those TVs. Yeah, have the four screen. Yeah, but that that is a that's a lot different. Yeah, well, yeah. What did it look like when you were when you were managing a campaign? Yeah, so on a campaign, you've got you've got a specific room that is your war room on election night. And it has, you know, ideally now in the modern age, it's got monitors everywhere. Uh, most of them are actually not turned to the news because that's not helpful. The news is actually be- should be, uh, in a behind. well-run campaign, should be behind where you are. Uh, so it's actually full of spreadsheets. Uh, and what happens there is um, in most states, once uh, the polls close, uh, the early vote totals are immediately put up uh, in those local precincts. And so... If a, a campaign is, is designed well, you've got volunteers at those places to immediately call in those election, those early vote totals. And based on your formulas, a lot of times you get a pretty good sense of uh, how the election result is going to turn out. So you've got your war room and then you generally will have a ballroom where your supporters are, your donors. And as a campaign manager, you're actually kind of bouncing back and forth early in the night. Trying to keep uh, the energy high in the ballroom. Keep the energy high, keep people, you know, give them the updates that they need. Uh, but then as it gets a little bit later in the night, generally your candidate uh, and his or her spouse uh, comes with them if, if they're married. You get them in a place where they're comfortable and they are focusing on uh, what they need to do next. The most important job you have as a campaign manager is to deliver the news to your candidate on that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got all those spreadsheets, the numbers come in. You should have a pretty good idea of whether you have prevailed or not. And you have to be the person right. to tell your candidate that. And if if you do not, if we have any aspiring campaign managers uh, in our listenership, if you do not, if you're not the voice to deliver that news, you have failed mm. uh, at your job on election night. I actually told this to a couple of folks recently who are asking for some advice. And I said, you have one job on election day. That's throughout the day to keep your candidate from going crazy because they generally are so amped up. They just want to go do lots of things. And probably the best thing to do is tell them to go uh, wave some signs, shake some hands, uh, but then get them comfortable on election night and then deliver them the news, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, Because if they hear it from someone else, a reporter calling, other candidate calling to either concede or maybe even ask for a concession, you have actually not done your job. So it's a, it's a, it's a thrilling night. Uh, that can be incredibly uh, hair-raising, and it can be incredibly disappointing. I, I have suffered amazing wins, and I have suffered some devastating losses. There's just nothing quite like an election night. 
That's just so fascinating. I mean, it sounds like a script for a movie. <laughs> Where will you guys be watching, Travis, Stephen? Well, we we actually need to talk about this as a team. But we'll open yeah, up. Yeah, we should uh, open up the office. DC office. I'm actually. I've got to fly to Nashville the next day for a meeting. So I've so got to just pull an all nighter. I've got a six a.m. flight, so I might be sleeping at the office. Stephen, what about you? Steve, will you be, be joining us at the office? No, I will be in Boston. Oh, uh, that's, right. that's right. The North American Religions Colloquium, which is held every other Tuesday night at Harvard. And so I will do that. Uh, and then a part of my Tuesday night ritual, I will order a pizza from Domino's, the best, <laughs> the best pizza uh, establishment in the country, go to a hotel, FaceTime my kids. <laughs> Quick, quick footnote. We always know if uh, Stephen has come to the office to pull late night. Uh, all-nighter yeah, paper all-nighter, writing. Something like that. Based on whether there is a Domino's pizza box <laughs> in, in the recycling bin in our office. Yes. So, <laughs> uh, And then I'll probably track the news with the election. Plus, I'll have you all on Slack giving me the second-by-second second rundown. <laughs> oh, so. yeah. We should probably open up a, an election night channel just for that. So No, I want to talk about it in random. Yeah. <laughs> or announcements. <laughs> oh, mercy. Oh, mercy. Brent, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. This has been a blast. I mean, I, I, I really appreciate the expertise with which you brought to this conversation. Uh, but, you know, I also just want to say, and I know I speak for Travis and Stephen and, and the rest of us in D.C. when I tell you how grateful we are for your friendship and how much fun it is to work with you. So I'm glad you decided to jump upstream in the cultural stream from politics to come work with us at the ERLC. We appreciate your friendship and and your work and for joining us here on Capital Conversations. Thank you. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, Gary Lancaster, Marie Delf, Conrad Close, and Simona Barca for getting this episode online. Show notes and links for this episode are available at ERLC.com along with additional podcasts and other resources to equip you and your church.